to the proclamation of God's word. We are in Romans 15. You can find that in your worship folder or, of course, look it up in your Bible. But uh, Romans 15, verses 7 through 13. And as you're going there, let me just share kind of what we're looking forward to here in Romans because we are coming to the end. So uh, really, they'll probably have two more sermons here in Romans, the rest of chapter 15 and then all of 16. Um, next week, however, we have a visiting church planter from the Great Lakes Presbytery, um, Shiv, and I can never pronounce his last name right. I believe it is Mutha Mocker. He will correct me, uh, but he's, he's, a, he's a good brother. He is planting a church in Novi. He is Indian. Uh, and, of course, as you know, if you know the area, there are a lot of uh, Indians as well as other Asian peoples in the Novi area, although he's not specifically trying to plant an a ethnic church. Um, he is certainly equipped by God for that, and he's a good brother. We're excited to have him come and preach to us and share a little bit about what uh, the Lord is doing there in that church plant in Novi, and so that'll be good. And then we will finish up, like I said, a couple more sermons in Romans, and where we'll be going next is the Ten Commandments. I'm going to preach a sermon series. We're going to call it Christ of the Commandments, and I'm excited about that because uh, God's commandments to us, well, they are life, and they point us to Jesus Christ, and uh, I'm sure it will be excited. But for now, Romans 15, again, verses 7 through 13. This is God's word. Let us give it careful attention. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, and he who arises to rule the, the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let us pray. Father in heaven, again, we do thank you for your word. And we would ask now that your a spirit would attend the proclamation of it, to work in our hearts, to stir up faith, and to strengthen us, to point us to the person of Jesus Christ, and to feed us upon the grace and truth of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, if I were uh, coming up with a sermon title, I would probably change this one, and I would call it the chief end of the church. Because what Paul is really getting at here is what is the purpose of the church? What is our purpose as a local congregation of the church of Jesus Christ? 
That's a question that's been asked again and again by pastors and theologians, church leaders and members, and even those outside the church. It's an important question to ask because we must know our purpose, what we exist for, what we are all about. And we need to know that if we are to ever understand our mission in the world. What are we here to do? Because they are connected together. Now, you see, some people will answer that question and say, well, the purpose of the church is to be a force for good in the world, to help the poor, heal the sick, provide aid to the suffering, and food to the hungry. Others will say the, the purpose of the church is to transform culture, to promote justice, to fight evil, to, to make society more moral. Others will still say that the church is to be uh, therapeutic, to help people feel better about themselves, to find a community that supports them, where they might experience some sort of emotional or spiritual high. And still others will say, well, the purpose of the church is evangelism, the, the spreading of the gospel, the converting people to Christ as his disciples. That's the reason the church exists. Now, some of those responses are certainly better than others. And all of them have things that we can take away and consider. I mean, we ought to be concerned about biblical justice in this world. We ought to desire to see evil challenged and, and good to triumph. Um, there are certainly aspects of the culture we would love to see transformed uh, so that it would be more of a society that reflects God's design for humanity as it is prescribed in his law. And certainly showing empathy to those who are suffering emotionally and physically is a good and charitable part of loving your neighbor as yourself. And yes, the world needs the gospel. Evangelism is an important task of the church, calling people to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. But all of these responses have something in common. And that is this, that they all miss the real purpose, the real mission of the church. They're all good. They have, as I said, aspects we can learn from, but they aren't the final, the ultimate purpose of the church. You see, the church is Christ's body. He alone is its head. And not popes, nor princes, priests, nor patriarchs, and not even pastors are the head of the church. It is Jesus. And so he alone determines and sets what the church's ultimate purpose is, and thus declares what our main mission is to be. And what that means, then, if we're going to be a church that faithfully follows Jesus, we need to get our purpose as well as our mission from Jesus Christ. And to understand the purpose and mission as Christ's church, we need to understand the purpose and mission of Jesus Christ. Why did he come? What was his ultimate and highest of goals? Well, Paul shows us in our text this morning exactly that. See, the big idea here is that we learn that Jesus became a servant so that God would be worshipped amongst the nations of the world. Jesus became a servant so that ultimately God would be worshipped amongst all the nations of the world. 
John Piper uh, was right when he said that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. And so the ultimate purpose of the church, then, isn't missions, it isn't evangelism, it isn't discipleship, it isn't good works of mercy. Those are simply a means to the end to bring about the true purpose, which is the worship of God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. That's our purpose. That's what we're here for. And that purpose dictates our mission, which is to make Jesus known amongst all the peoples of the earth so that God gets the glory he deserves. So there's three things I want us to consider in this text then this morning about Jesus' purpose to bring about the global mission, uh, global worship of God alone. And then we'll look briefly at what that means for us in our purpose here at Christ Church Ann Arbor and as uh, believers and how it impacts our mission to Ann Arbor and the, the state of Michigan and our nation and the world. And uh, those three things about Jesus, I'll give them to you right up front and then we'll, we'll dive into them, is that Jesus became a servant to demonstrate God's truthfulness, display God's faithfulness, and draw together God's worshipers. So, we're going the Baptist route and alliterating it this morning. I don't always do that, but demonstrate God's truthfulness, display God's faithfulness, and draw in God's worshipers. So first of all, Jesus became a servant to demonstrate God's truthfulness. Consider the very first part of verse 8 here. He says, Paul writes, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Christ became a servant. Paul wants you to see that. In fact, if he were typing this on his MacBook, he would be putting on his caps lock and putting his font into bold. He's saying, I'm telling you, pay attention. Don't miss what I'm about to say. And what does he want us to hear? Christ became a servant. And this, of course, speaks of Jesus's condescension. Jesus, through, through, uh, though he was a king, became a servant coming down from heaven. He who could stretch the infinite spectrum of space between his arms as if it were a curtain. He takes on a robe of flesh like you and I, being made like us yet without sin. God became a man. The, the creator took on the form of his creation and notice to whom, Paul says in verse 8, Jesus came to be a servant to. He says Jesus became a servant to the circumcision. And of course, by that, he means the Jews, the old covenant people of God. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. And thus to Israel was predicted by many a prophet that the Messiah would come, that a servant would would come. For example, God declares through the prophet Amos to the people of Israel in exile, he says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, 
and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. That message from God to Israel is, of course, repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament when the people entered into that exile as a result of their idolatry and rebellion against God, they longed for the fulfillment of those prophecies of the coming servant of God who would deliver them and set them free. And how many a Hebrew father told his sons and daughters the words that God had spoke through the prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. It was for that servant that they waited and they waited with eager hope and longing. But the exile drew on. Now the people did begin to return to the land, but they were not fully restored. And still, no Messiah was born. Nation after nation, kingdom after kingdom, rose up and ruled over them. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. And then the voice of the prophets themselves fell silent. For centuries there was no word of God spoken again regarding this coming servant of God. Had the words God spoken then been untrue? Was God a liar? Where was the Messiah? Well, one night in that small town of Bethlehem was born the Christ, born to a woman, born under the law, made like us in all points, yet without sin. The promised one had come. The deliverer had arrived, but not as the people expected. For he did not come as a warrior king, but a humble servant, born to a, a lowly virgin from the Judean back country. And then he was arrested, and he was tried, and put to death on a Roman cross a terrible torture instrument. He was cursed to hang on a tree. Was God untrue? No, he was not. For in coming as a suffering servant, Jesus proved God's word to be true. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced. The servant of God was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Everything God said that would take place in the life and ministry of his servant, of Jesus Christ, was fulfilled. There was not one prophecy, one detail that was overlooked. Even the parting of his garments at the cross was predicted to take place centuries prior. Yes, Jesus became a servant to uphold, to demonstrate that God is true, that he is true to his word, that he is dependable, that we can trust him. 
Jesus' virgin birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension were all spelled out in vivid detail by God. And it all came to pass just as God said it would to save his people from their sins. And so we could put it this way. Jesus became a servant to glorify God's truthfulness. But not only did he come to demonstrate God's truthfulness, secondly, Jesus became a servant to display God's faithfulness. So notice Paul's words again in verse 8. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now, those promises spoken of here, of course, God's covenant promises that he has given within his covenant of grace. And so then to understand what Paul is getting at, it is good then for us to be reminded of what a covenant is. We speak of it a lot. A covenant is an agreement usually between a superior like a king and his subjects or even a vassal king. And covenants were a a common form of relationships and treaties in the ancient Near East. They typically contained obligations that the covenanting parties would need to follow, promises that the covenanting parties made, and blessings and cursings that would occur depending on if the covenant was kept or broken. Now, after sin entered into the world through man's rebellion, God established what we call a covenant of grace with those whom he would save. It is a covenant of grace because God is the one who keeps it for us through Jesus Christ, our mediator. And as God's revelation progresses throughout history, more and more promises of God are spoken of in that covenant of grace. Uh, To the patriarchs particularly, God promised, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it is those particular promises that Paul is focusing in on here a promise of a great nation, a great people, a promise of a land, a kingdom uh, to which those people would belong, and a promise that God's people would be a blessing to the entire world. And later, God will summarize all of these gracious promises in Ezekiel 36, 28, where he says, you shall be my people and I will be your God. And as we come into the New Testament, what we see is that Jesus fulfilled every one of those covenant promises on behalf of his people, on behalf of those who trust him, that he saves. And they were fulfilled or confirmed, as Paul says here, by Jesus becoming a servant. And the word Paul chooses to use for confirmation of those promises is really interesting. It is a a Greek legal term that denotes establishment or fulfillment and certainty. In other words, Jesus legally secured the blessing of uh, the promises for all God's covenant people. 
And that's why we call it a covenant of grace. He not only verified or certified or confirmed all the promises as true, but he made the actual benefits of those promises a reality for everyone who was united to him in faith. He did that through his coming in the flesh, through his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, all of his redeeming work, including his coming return, all of that is done to fulfill God's promises. And God promised to Noah to preserve life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. God promised to Abraham to multiply his descendants as the stars of the heavens and the sands upon the seashore. And we find in Galatians 3.29 that all who belong to Jesus are Abraham's offspring according to the promise. God promised a land to Israel through Moses. And Jesus has gained the entire world as his kingdom through his triumphant victory through the cross and the resurrection. And now all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him so that all come to him, who come to him in faith are made part of what Paul calls in Galatians 6, the Israel of God. Yes, all the earth is the land of promise. It all belongs to Jesus Christ. And to David was promised an heir who would be a king that would rule in righteousness forever and ever. And Jesus, through his redeeming work, has made the kingdom of this world to become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Yes, Jesus has fulfilled every promise God has made in his covenant of grace so that every blessing falls then upon those who are united to him in faith. And if Christ is your Savior, those blessings are yours. And in doing that, Jesus has shown God to be faithful. He has glorified God's faithfulness. So Jesus became a servant to demonstrate God's truthfulness. He became a servant to display God's faithfulness and Jesus became a servant to draw together God's worshipers. So again, verse 8, For I tell you, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus became a servant, says Paul, so that the Gentiles might glorify or worship God. Why? Because of his mercy towards them. You see, Jesus' servant ministry to the circumcision, to the Jews, resulted in mercy for the Gentiles, all the other peoples, all the other nations of the world. And because of that mercy that they receive when they come to Christ and they believe the gospel through faith and repentance, are made part of God's people. Because of that, those nations are driven to worship God alone as the only true God, the creator of heaven and earth. That was Paul's point back in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. 
that in God's wise and sovereign plan, Israel stumbled into unbelief, and through their stumbling, the Gentile peoples of the world came to know God's salvation. And because the Gentiles are being saved by God's mercy, the Jews are stirred to jealousy, and some of them, a believing remnant, look to Christ. And so what God does then is to make one people, both Jews and Gentiles, united together, the true spiritual Israel, who worship God with one harmonious voice, declaring his glories. That is God's plan. It always has been. His covenant of grace was never meant to be directed slowly or solely to the Jewish people at the expense of all the other nations of the world. He always meant to include people like you and I. If you're not Jewish, as long and also the Jewish people who come to Christ in faith. And so Paul strings together then a, a series of Old Testament quotations to make this point that Jesus became a servant to gather worshipers from amongst all the nations. He says, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him with the Gentiles hope. In case you're wondering or want to take notes on that, those quotes are from 2 Samuel 22:50, Psalm 18:49, Deuteronomy 42:43, Psalm 117:1, and Isaiah 11:10. So what Paul is doing then, he's quoting from every part of the Old Testament scriptures, the law, the prophets, the books of wisdom and history, all of them are included. In other words, God's eternal purpose through all time as seen in all of the Bible is to gather together a people from every nation to worship him. He desires people from every corner of the earth, from every tribe who speak every tongue, from every kingdom and nation. He wants to be praised and worshipped in English and Spanish and Chinese and Japanese and Portuguese and Russian and Ukrainian, every language, every ethnicity, every culture, praising him for who he is. Notice a few key things that are common in all of these quotations Paul gives. First, we see the obvious emphasis on the Gentiles, right? I'll praise you among the Gentiles. Rejoice, O Gentiles. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. In Christ, that is the root of Jesse, the Gentiles hope. And so again, we see this emphasis on all the nations of the world, but not exclusively the Gentile nations. Notice Paul is careful to also include a quotation where God's old covenant people are mentioned. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with, together with, in union with his people. 
And so Gentiles and Jews united together in Jesus Christ. Athanasius explained that so beautifully when he said, speaking of the cross, he says, here again we see the fitness of Jesus' death and of those outstretched arms. It was that he might draw his ancient people with one and with the other, the Gentiles, and join them both together in himself. Thirdly, we notice being emphasized here is this action of praise, of worship, of rejoicing. Praise, sing, rejoice, extol, hope. It all speaks of worship. They're parallel terms that all speak of, of glorifying God. In verse 9, the praise speaks of a, a public confession in the honor of another. And the context, of course, is that of Jesus confessing of God's power and mercy amongst the nations of the world. To sing is to sing specifically hymns and psalms of praise which magnify the might and the character of God. To rejoice is to, to is a call to exuberant joy and happiness that flows from delighting in all that God is and all that he has done for you. And to extol him is to declare his excellencies, to say aloud, this is who our God is, this is what he has done. Listen, listen, O nations of the world. This is why God is higher and greater above all other beings. It's a verbal meditation of all his attributes, his self-existence, his love, his mercy, his power, his holiness. And you put that all together, and what we see is that, yes, Jesus became a servant to gather people from every nation, both Jews and Gentiles, to be one people who with one voice worship God. That's his purpose. That's why he became a servant, so that we might love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. That's what drove Jesus' mission, the glory of God. And in demonstrating God's truthfulness by fulfilling every prophecy, he glorifies God's truth. In confirming every covenant promise, he glorifies God's faithfulness. And in gathering worshipers from amongst all the peoples of the earth, he ensures that God will be glorified everywhere, universally. And that, that is the great reversal of where we started with in Romans, back in Romans chapter 1. Paul began his letter, and remember what he said? He, he laid out that thesis. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, his coming, his dying, his resurrection, 
that we are made right or righteous with God. That is why the just, the righteous, live by faith. But immediately after laying out that thesis statement, Paul begins to show us why it must be that way. That's because God is not worshipped in the world as he should be. For although God is known in all creation, we see it in the details, we see it in the order, he is ignored. And people push aside that truth that is so evident before them because in the darkness of human hearts they choose to worship everything else but God. But Jesus' mission was to reverse that to bring about that great and final purpose that God would be worshipped as he is due. He became a servant to restore the worship that God rightly deserves, to glorify God. And as his church then, as we look to Christ our head, that purpose is our purpose as well. We engage in missions, we love our neighbors, we do all that we do because we want God to be worshipped by his creation. Now what does that mean for you? Well, there's the obvious application, right? That as the church, we are to make it our aim to see that God is worshipped throughout the world. So through our, our giving, through our going, through our sending, through our support, our prayers, our preaching, our love for one another, we aim to see God glorified in all these things. And, and we will be intentional in our efforts to see that worship of Christ our King is the aim of all that we do in our church and in our lives. But there's another application that I want you to see here that this applies directly to you, and it's found right in the prayer of benediction that Paul gives in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You see, because God desires to be worshipped amongst the nations of the earth, you have hope. That is your hope. Hope is the, the dominant emphasis of Paul's benediction here. And why is that? It's because when God isn't worshipped in the earth, there is no hope. See, all the suffering and all the sorrow and all the sin that we see in this world is the result of people not glorifying God. It's a hopeless world because the lack of worship has produced a lack of hope. But God is a God of hope, and since he desires to have people who do worship him and enjoy him forever, he will then, through Christ, fill his people with joy and peace which flow from faith so that they overflow in real hope. And how does he do that? He does it when we, as his people, worship him. That's why we gather together on the Lord's Day to worship Him. It's why we ought to worship Him in our families. It's why we ought to worship Him as individuals every day. You see, 
Worship is an expression of our faith. We express what we believe through our praise as we confess our trust in Jesus who has demonstrated to us God's truth. We express our faith when we we sing of God's covenant mercies who Jesus has fulfilled. And we, we express our faith when we are filled with joy and peace because our sins are forgiven and death is defeated and Christ is gathering together his church, all God's people, so that they might glorify God with one united voice. That's our hope. That's where we have true joy and peace. It's so easy, so easy, and you know this, to be overwhelmed by the misery and the darkness of this world. But we can overcome that darkness with the light of God, light that we see that warms our hearts when we worship him together through Christ our Lord. And so when you are discouraged, worship your Christ, worship your God through the spirit that he has given you. When you are suffering, praise God for his excellencies. When you are overwhelmed in this life, do what God has made you to do and what Christ has saved you to do and worship your God. And as you do, God will, he will fill you with joy and peace. For we do not serve a God of empty promises and lies, but one who is truthful and is faithful, who has fulfilled every promise for us. We serve a God who has made us to be part of his people so that we might praise him. That is our hope. What is your only hope or your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own. That would be hopeless. But I belong. And to whom do you belong? To Jesus Christ, who fully paid for all your sins. And so worship your Savior, your God, your King. For worship will fill you with hope. And let us as Christ church then make that our chief aim till the day when all of our earthly praise will finally break forth into that heavenly praise that will never end. And we know the full reality of our hope in Christ for we shall see him as he is and we shall be like him and glorify and enjoy our God forever. Let us pray. Father in heaven, again, we do praise you for your word. We're thankful that we have a hope that does not fade, that is not overcome by the darkness that we see in this world. Lord, I ask that you would encourage your people, that you would give them that joy, that if their hearts are downcast, that you would wipe away the tears that even through their suffering, they might be able to say, you are a good and loving God. You have not forgotten them, but you have saved them and made them your own. We pray this in Jesus' name.